The scripture reading is from 2 Kings 22 and 23, excerpts from these <clears throat> two chapters. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidiah, and daughter, the daughter of Adiah from Bozkoth. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. <clears throat> in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azalah, grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary, to the temple of the Lord. He told him, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people of the Lord's temple. And trust this money to the men assigned to, the, to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple. But don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Shaphan went to the king and reported, your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Achacham the son of Shaphan, Avkor, son of Milkiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and Isaiah, the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people for all Judea. Judah. Inquire about the words written in the scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in the scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, <clears throat> all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took... <coughs> his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands of the law and decrees with all his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Then the king instructed Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second rank and the temple gatekeepers to remove from the Lord's temple all the articles that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and all the powers of the heavens. The king had all these things burned outside Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley, and he carried the ashes away to Bethel. <clears throat> 
The king removed the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple and took it aside Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley where he burned it. Then he ground the ashes of the pole to dust and threw the dust over the graves of the people. He also tore down the living quarters of the male and female shrine prostitutes that were inside the temple of the Lord, where the women wove coverings for the Asherah pole. Then the king defiled the altar of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could ever again use it to sacrifice a son or daughter in the fire as an offering to Molech. He removed from the entrance of the Lord's temple the horse statues that the former king of Judah had dedicated to the sun. King Josiah then issued this order to all the people. You must celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as required in this book of the covenant. There has not been a Passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in Israel, nor throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Josiah also got rid of the mediums and psychics, the household gods, the idols, and every other kind of detestable practice, both in Jerusalem and throughout the land of Judah. He did this in obedience to the law written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the Lord's temple. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses, and there has never been a king like him since. Thank you, Marion. Let me start this morning by asking you all a question. Where do you get your identity from? What helps you shape your priorities? What motivates you? What helps you choose where you're going to spend your time? And what helps you decide where and how you're going to invest in relationships? Today we're studying the person of Josiah, and he was called the last godly king. And it's because he worked harder than any other king in Israel to help the Israelites remember their identity, who they were. They were destined to be a people set apart in the world. They were God's people, and through that identity, they were supposed to live by a radically different ethic. They were supposed to embody an alternate reality in the world, and they were supposed to do this by following the book of law. And yet over time, they had forgotten this. They had allowed the powers and the priorities and the faiths from the surrounding nations to seep in and confuse them and distract them and derail them. The question for us today is how do we learn from this story of Josiah? What is the deep spiritual truth that we can take away from it? And I think we can start here. That like the Israelites, we are called to be a people with a unique identity. We are called to live by a radically different ethic. And we are to embody an alternate reality in the world. But how are we to connect with this identity? How do we work not to lose our focus in the center the way the Israelites did? So let's start by doing a quick overview of this story with Josiah. Thank you, Marian, for reading that. Those two chapters, well, there was excerpts, but it's basically two chapters in 2 Kings. So we learn that Josiah is a boy king. He comes to be the king when he's eight years old. And my youngest son is eight years old, and I can hardly imagine him being made king of a nation. 
Um, the Bible says that in his 18th year, so when he was about 24 years old, he decides that he's going to repair the temple of Yahweh. It hasn't been used to worship Yahweh in generations. All the spiritual practices and rituals that the Jews had used together as a community have sort of fallen by the wayside. There may be individual families that are still practicing some of these Jewish rituals and traditions, but as a community, they have lost it. And while Josiah's people are repairing the temple, um, they make this incredible discovery. And it kind of reminds me of a scene from Indiana Jones. Like here we are in, in, in the ancient Middle East. They're in this old temple. They're repairing it. There's like dust. They're, they're pulling aside all these ancient relics. And they discover a scroll. And the, the priest Hilkiah pulls it out. He blows off the dust and enrolls it. And he begins to read. And as he reads, his heart begins to race because he, has re he realizes that he has found the book of law. He has found Torah, the anchor and the plumb line of the faith of Yahweh. And so he runs and he takes the scroll back to Shaphan and he says, I have found the book of law. And to his credit, Shaphan understands that this is a very significant find. And so he takes the book of the law to Josiah and he gives Josiah an update. He says, everything's going well with the temple. Oh, and um, we found this scroll. We found the book of Yahweh. Now, maybe Josiah has heard about this book from his mother. Maybe he's heard about it through the grapevine and, and knows that this is a very important book, but he's never actually seen it for himself. He's never actually read it himself or touched it. And so as Shaphan reads the book of the law to him, which biblical scholars tells us is the book of Deuteronomy. It's the book Moses gave to the Israelites telling them how to live a good life with Yahweh. And it's full of rules and rituals and things that they must follow in order to be the people of God, to live differently in the world. But as Shaphan starts to read this text, any joy or excitement that Josiah might have felt turns suddenly to despair because he realizes that they have not been following these rules and rituals, not even by a long shot. They have over the years so totally and utterly forgotten who they were and their identity as God's people, and they have broken every, nearly every single commandment in the book of the law, and this is bad. This is very bad. So Josiah tears his clothes as a sign of utter humility and grief. He sends Shaphan and the priest to go find a prophet who can interpret the book of law for them. And he wants to make sure that they're really understanding clearly what they're reading in this book. And if things are really as bad as he's afraid they are. So the priests go to a very well-respected prophetess by the name of Huldah. Hulda listens to them, and she confirms their worst fears. She gives them a two-part prophecy. She says, first of all, yes, what you fear is correct. Israel has abandoned God in their relationship with God, and God has shown mercy over and over and over again. He's, he's shown you patience. He's sent you prophet after prophet and king after king, but you have not turned back to him. And so the time of patience and mercy is done, and now God is going to destroy Israel. He will tear apart the nation, and he's going to scatter the Israelites to the four winds. But, and here's the second part of the prophecy, Huldah tells them, because, Josiah, you have shown humility, God's going to spare you. He's going to have mercy on you, and he's going to allow you to die before this destruction happens, so you're not going to watch it happen. Now, what I find most interesting about this is that even though Josiah is told that there's no possible way to change the fate of Israel. Israel is doomed. He's still 
commits himself to complete and utter reformation of Israel as a nation. He still commits himself to doing what is right, even though it's not going to change the future. So he embarks on a total and utter reformation. He goes full tilt, and we heard a little bit um, from Marion about what he does. He starts with the temple of Yahweh. And we have to remember that it's not like for the Israelites like it is for us. We feel we can worship God anywhere. We come to church to learn and fellowship, but we believe we can read our Bibles at home and we can pray out in nature. We believe we can meet with God really anywhere. But for the Israelites, it wasn't that way. If they wanted to commune with God, they had to go to the temple. That was where God's presence resided in the Holy of Holies. And so how jarring, how disturbing, how abhorrent that inside this temple, the place where Yahweh's presence dwelt, there were altars set up to Canaanite gods and goddesses where people engaged um, in acts that degraded their bodies in order to worship these foreign gods. And then out on the hillside surrounding the city, there were these high places where wizards and witches, and yes, the Bible does have wizards in it, you can go check, um, Second Kings, false priests and prophets sacrificed and performed rituals to these other gods. And there was even an altar where the Israelites could go and sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the foreign god Melech. So this is not at all what Yahweh had intended when he had given the Israelites the book of the law and told them to live in relationship with him. But Josiah, he was radical, and he went at this reformation with a vengeance. He didn't just destroy these places and priests and objects of worship. He desecrated them. He sprinkled the remains of, of the altars and the objects over graves, or he would take graves and, and bones and remains and sprinkle it over um, the sites of worship so that they could never be used again to worship any other god. But in the end, it doesn't make a difference. Josiah is hailed as the last and the best king of all the kings of Israel, but he dies in battle. And just a few years after his death, Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, carries off their scribes and their people into Babylon, into captivity. They're made slaves. And the nation of Israel is once and for all destroyed. The nation of Israel has existed up until this point for about 400 years. But at this point when it's destroyed, it will never again be its own nation until the 1940s. So what's the point of this strange little story in, this, in these chapters? Josiah is a good king. He's a great king, but it doesn't change anything. What difference does it make? Well, I think we need to fit, fill in the picture a bit more. We need to see the larger context of this story and understand how it fits into God's bigger narrative. So the first question is, when was 2 Kings written? Well, it was written in the time of exile. It was written after the reign, the 400 years of these, of these kings. And who was it written for and why? Well, the narrator of 2 Kings is writing to the Israelites who are in exile to try to explain to them how they ended up where they were. They were completely flabbergasted. They knew they were supposed to be set aside and special, and then how could this have happened to them? How could they have been sent into exile like this? So here's the big picture the narrator of 2 Kings is saying, and it starts all the way over here in Exodus with the Israelites in captivity in Egypt. And then God sends Moses to set the Israelites free, and he brings them into the desert, and in the desert, God makes a commitment to them. And God says to them, you are going to be my people. And I am going to be your God. And I am going to do something radically different through you in the world. 
And friends, this is the central claim of the Old Testament, that God is like no other God, that he is the one God who cares about his people, and that he wants to live in relationship with his people, and that he then sets the Israelites apart to live by a radically different ethic and to embody an alternate reality in the world so that they, he can then save the world through them. This is the heart of the first covenant that God gives his people. And so it's with this in mind that the narrator of Kings is writing about all the kings. So first and second kings, they just start to list the kings. So first there was this king and this king and this king. And what you'll notice as you read these books is that the narrator isn't particularly interested in the geopolitical exploits of these kings. They're not really interested in their successes or their wealth or their power or their gains. The one and only thing that the narrator is concerned about in First and Second Kings is how well did each king lead the Israelites in their relationship with God? How well did each king lead the Israelites in this commitment to God? How close did the king bring the Israelites to their identity? Or how far away did the king pull them away from their identity? And so either these kings, as you read these books, you'll see Either the kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or they did right in the eyes of the Lord. For this reason, we should read the story of Josiah as the narrator showing us what it means to be a model king. The narrator tells us that neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. Why is Josiah praised so deeply? Because, God's reforma- because Josiah's reformation represents nothing less than a recovery of a lost identity. He was working passionately to help the Israelites recover their identity as God's people. And this was anchored for them in the book of law. And so the book of law wasn't just about following all these rules, but it was about something deeper that God was trying to do in them. This makes me think of the way God works in our lives even today sometimes. Sometimes there are things that God will ask us to do. There are relationships we should have or what decisions we should make. And it doesn't quite make sense. And the reality is that um, it's maybe not about the external things that we see on the surface, but it's about a deeper thing God is trying to do in our hearts, right? Because our hearts are the wellspring of life. A couple weeks ago, I decided to... um, repaint our bathroom because my oldest was away at camp and I only had my youngest so I only had one child to wrangle I thought I'll try to paint the bathroom and bath painting is such a chore but as I was painting this bathroom it suddenly occurred to me that the only instruction I've ever had in painting is from Mr. Miyagi up down it's all in the wrist it's all in the wrist And so when I finished painting the bathroom, I decided I would celebrate by watching Karate Kid because it's on Netflix right now. And so I pulled up the first Karate Kid and I was watching it and right, like the very, very best scenes from this movie are when Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach Daniel Rousseau karate, right? And he stands in front of Daniel and he says, all right, do you promise to do everything I tell you? And Daniel says, yes. And Mr. Miyagi gives him the bandana and then hands him a big bucket of soapy water and says, go wash my cars and wax them. Wax on, wax off, right? And so Daniel goes and he wax on, wax off. He gets it done. He says, come back tomorrow at 6 o'clock and we'll start your, next le- your lesson in karate. So Daniel comes the next day 
And Mr. Miyagi leads him into the backyard where he's built this beautiful decks that go all through his yard. And he hands him two sanders and he says, sand all these decks. Sand on, sand off. Sand on, sand off. And Daniel's like, okay. So he does it all day long. His muscles are starting to get sore. Mr. Miyagi says, come back tomorrow at 6 o'clock a.m. So Daniel comes back the next day. And Mr. Miyagi hands him a bucket of paint. And he says, paint all my fences. And this is where we get the up, down, right? It's all on the wrist, up, down. The next day, Daniel comes back. And Mr. Miyagi isn't even there. He's gone fishing for the day. And he's left a note with written instructions that Daniel needs to paint his house side to side, side to side. By the time Mr. Miyagi comes home that night, Daniel has had it. He is so mad. And he chases Mr. Miyagi into the backyard. And he says, don't you think I wanted to go fishing with you? And Mr. Miyagi says, you've been learning karate. And he's like, no, I haven't. I've been learning to be your slave. And he's so mad. He's like, I've had it with you. And he goes to, to walk off. And Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel, son, wax on. And Daniel goes to wax on the ground. He's like, nope, stand up. Wax on. And then Daniel begins to do the wax on, the wax off, right? And as he goes through the motions of everything he's been doing the last four days, wax on, wax off, sand on, sand off, up, down, side to side, Mr. Miyagi begins to throw punches. Hi-ya. And as he throws the punches, Daniel is diverting them. Wax on, wax off. And then without even having to cue him, he, he does a series of punches and kicks. And Daniel doing the wax on, wax off, sand on, sand off, blocks every single one. And it's that, in that moment that Daniel realizes it hasn't actually been about doing all the chores, right? And we as an audience begin to realize it's not actually about being Mr. Miyagi's personal slave. What Mr. Miyagi was doing was creating a muscle memory in Daniel so that he could have karate in the depths of him, right? And then he gets to the final tournament, and he watches all the other people doing um, karate. He's like, Mr. Miyagi, I don't know all those moves. And Mr. Miyagi says, don't worry about the uh, quantity. You have the quality. You have ingrained this so deeply into who you are, you can win this tournament. And I think about this when I think about 2 Kings and the book of law. And the book of law as an anchor, as an identity for, for the Israelites. On the surface, it looks like God is just asking them to be his slave, right? Just do this thing for me, do this thing for me, do this thing for me. But really, it's about God creating a muscle memory in the Israelites so that they could really embody the identity that he had for them. In his commentary on 2 Kings, Walter Brueggemann writes that it is the book of law, it's the Torah that is the plumb line and the anchor for the Israelites and their identity for three reasons. The first reason is that Torah empowers the Israelites. Torah empowers, summons, and authorizes the Israelites to live as his people. So it's in the book of law that the Israelites begin to read, and they see themselves being called different. They see themselves being set apart, and they're given the instructions on how to live as God's people. The second way that Brueggemann says that the Torah was an anchor for their identity is that it is held up against every other form of religion at the time. So in that day and age, we talked a little bit about the Canaanites were surrounding them, the Canaanite gods. They were many, they were capricious, they were mean, they were dead, they wouldn't respond. And yet here, Torah tells a different story about a different faith. Torah says, no, there's one God, and he has created you in his image. And so he values your life, and he wants to live in relationship with you. This was unlike any other faith of that time. And Torah holds that up. This is a faith against every other faith. 
Finally, Brueggemann says that Torah anchors the Israelites' identity, thirdly, by calling for obedience. So Torah laid out the formula for how to have a relationship with God. Command, obey. Command, obey. So the, so the book of the law gives the command, and you are to obey, and this is how you're to have relationship with God. Any of us who've ever tried to train a toddler or a dog understand the power of command, obey, right? We had a dog for a few years, and I realized how much training dogs is like training toddlers. And I may or may not have used the squirt bottle once or twice on my son, just as I did on the dog to try to get them to behave, because my son was a toddler at the time. But I didn't do it all the time. Uh, but seriously, it's when, I think it's when we see children become two or three years old that we really have to start, for us anyway, when we really started having to discipline our oldest, our daughter, was when she was about two or three, because we lived at the time in a row of townhouses, like a subdivision of townhouses, and the townhouses backed up against one another and ran parallel, and the garages um, were at the back, and there was just this single alley that ran through the the garages, and so cars would drive down the alley to, to park in the garage, but it was a blind alley. If you were walking back um, to the back of our townhouse, you couldn't see left or right to see if a car was coming. And this was a moment when we really had to start disciplining Noelle because we needed her to listen and obey the command of stop, stop. When we would say stop, we needed her to stop. And we would try to reason with her maybe a little bit to understand why. I mean, she was so mad and so upset. Why weren't we just letting her run? And we tried to reason a little bit, but she couldn't understand, right? She didn't understand that her body was fragile. She had no concept of what it would mean um, to, to be hurt so badly that she could never walk again or to have brain damage or to die. She couldn't understand the concept that cars were dangerous and could devastate our lives. And so it was just important that she obey the command. And when I think of the Israelites in 2 Kings, they're really, they're a toddler nation, right? They're a baby nation. They can't yet envision the alternate reality that God is trying to create in the world through them. They can't see it. They don't have a concept of this radically different ethic that God is trying to train them into. And so it is important that they obey. Torah lays out the command. It's important that they obey. And yet any of us who have ever tried to train a child knows that there comes a point at which command and obey doesn't work so well anymore. Because command and obey for a time can alter our actions and our behavior, but it doesn't do a whole lot to change our hearts. And it's just my personal interpretation. I don't know if other people would read it this way, but as I read the story of Josiah in 2 Kings, I see God kind of coming to the end of this command and obey and realizing, you know what, that this isn't really changing the Israelites' hearts. This, this isn't really working. And so he has to do something new. And so as we read the great narrative of the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see the new thing that God does, right? He brings his son into the world, Jesus, to be the new Torah, the new book of the law, to not only help us see this radically different ethic and embody this alternate reality, but to be changed from the inside out. Jesus says of himself in Matthew 5, um, 17, he says, don't think, um, 
Don't think that I have come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus is our new Torah. He is our new book of law. And he simultaneously turns the book of law on its head and then deepens and fulfills it. And if Torah for the Israelites empowered them, summoned them, and authorized them to live as God's people in the world, then Jesus for us empowers, authorizes, and summons us to live as children of God in the world. If Torah for the Israelites was held up against every other faith at that time, then Jesus for us is held up against every other faith for our time. And not just other world religions, but other ideologies that call um, for our allegiance and set them up as pseudo-faiths in our lives. So an allegiance maybe um, to consumerism or comfort or politics or power or education. These things that we think will change us or change the world. Jesus is held up to those things and says, no, I want your allegiance. I will change you from the inside out. And if Torah laid out the formula for the Israelites of how to be in relationship with God, command, obey, command, obey, Jesus lays out a new formula for how to be in relationship with God, and it is call and follow, calling and following. So as we read in the New Testament, we see Jesus walking and calling people to him, calling his disciples to him, right? He's walking along the beach, and he's calling um, these fishermen to come follow him. And they have a choice. They can put down their nets, they can walk away from their boats, and they can go and follow Jesus, or they can keep doing what they're doing. It's their choice, right? It's not a command. It's a calling, and so the disciples, a few of them, they leave their nets, they leave their boats, they go and follow Jesus on the beach. But it's not a one-and-done kind of calling and following. It's, it's not just a one-time response. If it was just a one-time response, the disciples would be left on the beach all alone because Jesus kept moving. He kept going and he kept calling. Friends, Jesus is moving among us today, calling us. Are we going to follow and it's not just a one-time follow. It's a day-to-day -day following. Every day there's a new invitation, a new calling to see where he's going that day. I've been reading this last month, um, Walter um, A.W. Towser's book, The Pursuit of God. And in his first chapter, he talks about um, how we in modern Christianity have put a lot of pressure, a lot of uh, emphasis on sort of like the initial accepting of Jesus as the seat of our entire relationship with Jesus. That once we accept him, we think, that's it, we've got it. And we don't hunger for any further revelation from Jesus. He says we've fallen into the spurious logic that tells us once we've found God, we need no longer seek him. But he says the reality is if you look back over time, if you look in the scriptures, if we look at our, our, our forefathers and mothers, you see in them what he calls the soul's paradox of love. I love that phrase, the soul's paradox of love. That as they seek God, they, they simultaneously hunger for God more. They find God, they taste him, and then this, this fire is started in them, and they want more of God. And so as I think about this in terms of following Jesus, this new formula for being a relationship with God, the calling and the following, I see us living in this paradox of love, right? Jesus calls us and we respond. And as we respond, we want more of him. We're not happy to just have accepted him once or followed him once. We want more every day. And as we live in this paradox of love, it is through this 
that we begin to live by a radically different ethic in the world. It's in this pursuing, this paradox of love, that we begin to embody an alternate reality in the world. And we begin to cast a vision for the rest of the world of what this could look like. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Shane Claiborne down in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and his community of, of Jesus followers, and their, their sort of motto is they're living as if Jesus actually meant what he said. And as America, the states right now are dealing with this epidemic of gun violence and struggling to know really how to deal with it, Shane and his community have started a program where people can voluntarily surrender their guns and metal workers will then take those guns and turn them into garden tools. I mean, I just think this is brilliant. It's not popular at all. I mean, nobody's doing it. Uh, <laughs> but it's a brilliant idea. Um, but man, doesn't it cast a vision for us, right, of what this alternate reality could look like for us? What if people gave up their guns and we turned them into gardening tools? What if that was the ethic that we live by in this world? I think closer to home of the legacy that our Mennonite brothers and sisters have engaged in when they chose pacifism in World War I and World War II. In the eyes of the world, it looked like they were being cowards, but it wasn't. It wasn't. They refused conscription, not because of cowardice, but because they believed in the sanctity of life. They believed that God was who he said he was, that he valued life, that Jesus meant what he said, and that there was no such thing as a just war. They weren't cowards. They were living by a radically different ethic, and they were embodying an alternate reality in the world that could ignite our imagination to see the kingdom come here among us now. So we, we as followers of Jesus, like the Israelites in Second King, are called to live differently in this world. Not because of a book of law, not because of the Torah, but because of a relationship with a person who so fills us up and changes us from the inside out that we begin to alter the atmosphere around us. This is what we're called to be individually, but also as a community, as the body of Christ in the world. Josiah got it. He saw it clearly. He saw who Israel was supposed to be and, and where they went wrong. And may we see as clearly who we are called to be. And may we push hard against the kind um, of distractions um, and influences in the world that would confuse us and derail us from our true identity. I have two questions for you as we go into our discussion time today. And the first one is, um, Jesus is calling you this week. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do this week to hear his calling and to press into that paradox of love? My second question for you is, how are you going to try to embody an alternate reality in your little sphere of influence this week, in your work, in school, as school starts back up, in your homes. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for Josiah and his example to us of what it means to reclaim our identity as your children. Jesus, I pray that um, as you pursue us this week, 
as you call us this week, that your voice and your presence would be near and tangible and close um, for my brothers and sisters here in this room. I pray that our hearts would be open and sensitive to you and that we would continue to hunger for more revelation of you every day, that we would continue to press forward into following you every day, and that through that you would empower us to live by a radically different ethic in this world, to embody a different reality that shows the rest of the world a new vision of what it means to be human and to be loved by you and to be your child. I ask this in your name. Amen.